Amen, indeed. Probably be the last time I think we sing that for the month. So that's sad. I've gotten, yeah, yeah, groan. Um, it, is, it is a sauce of groaning. Um, what a wonderful song. We do a song of the month, and this was our song for this month. And so um, we'll have a song of the month next month. And uh, don't worry, you'll hear it again. This isn't like the last time we'll sing it in the life of the church. Um, but, uh, but for this month, yes, and, and not for next month. Um, all right, take your Bibles. There's one change in your bulletin. We are, are not going to do um, submission and authority today. I know some of you probably came to just to hear that. You have to wait an extra two weeks. Um, but today, I actually, we, we'll return back to um, the text that I uh, preached through last week, and that is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 12. Um, last week, we looked at Christ as the proclamation, and today, I just want to look at what we're called to proclaim, because I think it's powerful and significant, what we're called to proclaim I also want to say before we dive in, um, one of the things that the pandemic has done in, in general is it's really kind of uh, stopped or, or made difficult um, serving in the church because a lot of things that we typically do in a church, um, like go places and serve people, that's become harder because a lot of, like, we can't go into certain places, but ministry is still being done here at CVPC. And um, you hear that regularly, but I just wanted you to know that there's different aspects of ministry that are still being done here. We're still doing Villa Way that happens right down the road on Wednesday. Every other Wednesday morning, we're still doing the Food Network. Um, if you want to be involved in that, we're still having growth groups. I know many of you are involved in that. We recently started a Trail Life chapter here that if some of you want to get involved with mentoring uh, young men, um, that's open as well. There's a lot of things going on that you can be a part of. And so don't feel like because COVID happened, we can't do ministry, uh, we can. We just have to do it in, in a slightly different way. So if you're available and you want to do it, uh, please reach out and let us know. I'll say this last thing um, on that score. As a, as a young Christian, when I first became a Christian, one of the things that was instrumental to my faith was serving, serving. And I will say this, one of the things that can be destructive to your faith if you are not careful is when you believe, but you don't actually have an opportunity to practice that within the life of the church. Um, your faith can become stagnant. You, you could feel like a sense of, like you're purposeless. Um, and I don't want anyone to feel that way because that's not how a Christian is supposed to feel. And so if you're, if you're in need of something to do within the life of the church, um, we have ways you can serve and I'd be happy to share those with you. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse number 4 down through verse number 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. As you come into him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our wonderful Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, we thank you so much for your word and for the power that's in it. Thank you that even today, as you speak through us, through your word to us, that we might be refreshed and encouraged, that we might be reminded of who we are. Oh, Lord, just bless our time together. This is your people, and this is your word. Cement the two together. May the one who does not believe, believe. May the one who believes already and is downtrodden, may they be encouraged. And may the one who believes and is encouraged all the more make them encouraged. Bless our time now in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. When we started the book of Peter, I said that the title for the entire message series was going to be Living Hope, that we have a living hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And we've seen that traced out throughout the entire book. First of all, that our living hope rests in the fact that we've been born again. And then Peter moves and talks about how our living hope is seen in the fact that we can be holy even as Christ our God is holy. And then last week we talked about our living hope is built upon Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Well, today we see that our living hope rests in the proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse number 9 again. I know we looked at it last week, but look at verse number 9 again. As a result of us being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, why is all of that the case? So that you and I might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you're here. And, and for you, you might be sitting down there and thinking, well, Pastor Dennis, that's odd that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of these people having one of the worst times that they will ever have in their entire life, Peter is telling them in the midst of all of this, you still have to be proclaimers of the excellencies 
of the one who brought you out of darkness into light. That's still the proclamation and the task that God has before you. Why is Peter doing that? Because Peter knows that all of us need a higher calling. All of us need something to which we can aspire to or strive to. It's, it's something that is placed within us by a holy God. And I can prove it to you in this way. Recently, I have been tracking two of, I wouldn't call them necessarily my favorite people in the world, but just two people that I keep my eyes on a lot. Jeff Bezos being one of them. And the next one is Elon Musk. You might say, well, pastor, do you just follow billionaires? Not exactly. But these two billionaires intrigue me for this reason. These two are the most conscientious people you will ever meet. They're, they're hyper-focused. They're always looking for the next big thing. Not only are they billionaires, but they are also people who are well-known. These are people that have reached the top of their profession. They trade out every now and then who's the richest person in the world. These people are just like they've reached the apex of what many people aspire to. Wealth, fame, anything that they want they can buy at a drop of a hat. But both of them recently said they want to do one thing. And some of you know what that is. They want to colonize Mars. In fact, in fact, Jeff Bezos says that he will give one billion, one billion dollars a year so that he can colonize Mars. That is significant to me for this one reason, right? These guys understand something that most of us miss, and it's this. That if you live for this world, and you put your faith and trust and hope in this world, and you try to accumulate the things of this world, even when you have everything in the world, your heart always desires something beyond this world. They get that. That's why they want to colonize Mars. Because they realize that Earth is just not enough. And Jeff Bezos is willing to spend a billion dollars on this endeavor. Now, here's the thing that they miss, right? Here's the thing that they miss that makes Peter's proclamation to us different. Even if they're successful, and I don't think they're going to be, but even if they are, and they can colonize Mars, do you know what will be the same even if they do it? There'll still be sinners on Mars. You see, you can take, you can take humanity and you could take them to Mars, and you can colonize Mars to make a better living space. But the problem with Mars is the same problem we're going to have on Earth. You're still going to have sinners on Mars. That's why even when they spend billions and billions of dollars to finally do it, unless there's like another Tower of Babel incident, right, they will do it. Because they set their mind and their heart on it. So unless God comes and says, no, you've gone too far, I'm not going to let you do it, they'll probably do it. Maybe not in my lifetime. Maybe not in your lifetime, but someone's going to do it. The problem with that way of thinking, that, that cosmic way of thinking that these men have is this. They're still going to be sinners on Mars. And whatever we do on Earth, we're still going to do it on Mars. We're still going to be murder. 
There's still going to be rape. There's still going to be stealing. All of those things. Why? Because their vision, their cosmic vision, isn't big enough. That's the problem with man in general. Our cosmic vision will never be big enough. That's why when Peter in verse number 9, when you read verse number 9, you need to understand what's happening here. Peter is giving us a cosmic vision that's beyond anything you and I can naturally think about. Because what Peter is saying here is we're not just going to colonize Mars. We're going to colonize heaven. And the way we're going to colonize heaven isn't putting everybody on a rocket. It's putting everyone in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only him who have the power to translate us out of darkness into light. That's the best cosmic mission anyone in this room can be on. Now, look, if the Lord wants to use one of you to go to the moon and to be an astronaut, go for it. That's a part of exercising dominion of his creation. But let no one pretend that going to the Mars, going to Mars will save humanity. Let none of us pretend that going to Mars is somehow going to make a better humanity. It will not. Because while you can take us, the man from Earth, you can't take the sin nature out of man. Not unless you have this cosmic vision laid out in verse number 9 that will take someone out of darkness into light. And Christian, this is the best mission we can give our lives to because this is the mission that will last for eternity this is the mission that will truly save lives people have gone to to the moon people have gone to um, space and they've come back and you know what they've noticed besides a little change in their dna they're still the same they're still sinful man But what Peter is trying to get us to see here is the cosmic mission laid out for us in Scripture is a cosmic mission that changes you inwardly so that at the end of the day, all of us, if we truly believe what Peter says, that we can be translated from darkness into light, all of us would be in heaven if we truly believe the message and if we truly give ourselves over to the message. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to answer the simple question, what are we called to proclaim? Because Peter says here in verse number 9 that we're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. That's what we're called to proclaim. That's what we're called to give ourselves over to. So what are we called to proclaim? Well, in a nutshell, we're called to proclaim the transformative work of Jesus Christ in all of our lives. That's what we're called to proclaim every day, the transformative power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than the descriptions, the Old Testament descriptions that Peter takes and applies it to the people of God now. And what I want to do is I want to go through these Old Testament um, allusions or these Old Testament descriptors that was true of the people of God in the Old Testament that Peter now puts on us to show us how glorious and marvelous those are and how that should be the basis of our proclamation in the world to bring others into the kingdom. 
So let's begin, first of all, go back to verse number four. And I want us to see that Peter says from the very beginning that one of the things that God has called us to is a holy priesthood. If you notice verse number four and five, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. For what reason? To be a holy priesthood. Notice even he takes that reality and puts it in verse number nine, a royal priesthood. Those two are the same realities. You could even take it a step further, and he's saying that all of us in this room are called to be high priests of God. Now, pause for a moment and think about how glorious that is, that you get to be the high priest of God. Think with me for a moment how exclusive the club of high priest is. First of all, you could only be a man, an Israelite, from one tribe, right, the tribe of Levi. And then on top of that, you were the person chosen among all your other brothers to stand before God in the Holy of Holies with the Urim and the Thummim. And, and, and on behalf of everyone else in Israel, you were their priest. You stood before God on behalf of everyone else. That's an incredibly exclusive club. And Peter says that now, because we are united with Christ, we've been brought into union with Christ, meaning this, at the point of salvation, that now we have a bond with Christ because of the Holy Spirit initiated by grace, right? Taken apart, uh, united together by faith. Because of that union, Peter says, you have been made a royal priesthood, holy priest high priest. Now, you might say, Pastor, why, why is that significant? Here's why that's significant. You now, as God's people, get to go before the Lord on behalf of other people. Remember, Peter is talking to people that were Gentiles. They, these Gentiles couldn't even, uh, these Gentiles could only go in the outer court. They couldn't go in the inner court. They couldn't go in the sanctuary. They couldn't go in the holies of holies. But yet, you see Peter saying, you now have the ability. You've been given that task by God to be the high priest on behalf of others. Husbands, you are now the high priest in your home, ministering before God for your family. Christian, all of us inside here today, whether we're male or female, whether we are, you know, uh, from the tribe of Israel or not, as Gentiles, we get to go before the Lord on behalf of our neighbors and our friends. And we get to pray for them and be their priests. That's a high calling that God has placed on each and every one of us. Recently, um, I looked at my inbox and I counted how many times um, the body, this body was asked to pray for one another. And I stopped in my inbox right around 20 times, right? That we're constantly being asked to pray for one another. I hope you see that as your high priestly function, to pause and to pray for your brothers and sisters in need. That's one way you fulfill this reality to be royal priesthood. That's one way that you and I 
um, proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. When we pray for one another, when we pray for our children, when we pray for that one who is struggling in their faith, that's a high priestly function. And that's something that all of us can participate in. Even me as your pastor, right? As I pray for other people and you pray for me. That's a part of your high priestly function and how you proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. Now notice with me the other one that Peter says in verse number nine. You are a chosen race. Now this is the one that blows me away even more. When you consider, when you consider who's speaking, it's Peter. The, the one person in the New Testament, if you read through all the New Testament, the one person that struggled the most with Gentiles coming into the kingdom was Peter. In fact, Peter struggled so badly that right before he went to Cornelius, what happened? God appeared to him in a dream and, put, and gave him a vision and said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter was supposed to rise, kill, and eat these unclean animals, as a picture and a sign that God was allowing the Gentiles to enter into the kingdom. On top of that, God came to him and says, Peter, what, what you have called unclean, I have called clean, and therefore you need to go and minister to Cornelius. Peter struggled with this notion that all of us are a part of God's chosen race. To the very end, Peter struggled with this reality that we are a part, Gentiles were a part of the people of God. Peter didn't recognize that what God was doing was in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 19, 24 through 25, that Egypt and Assyria and Israel, all of these people now will be united in God. Why is that significant? Because that's a sign of the end of hostilities. You and I both know we live in a time where wars, Hatred and divisions all spring up as a result of people's race. Or in other words, if I could put it this way, people's lineage. Think of all the atrocities in the 20th century that happened as a result of us being a part of different lineages. All of these things. And now God is saying that there is an end of hostilities. Why? Because now all of us have been brought into the same race, not by human blood, but by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of us are now connected. And so the natural things that might divide us, the natural things that might separate us, none of those things are the case. Because now Peter's saying, we are all a chosen race. And that's Peter saying that. That's what's incredible to me. Because Peter, more than anyone else, struggled with the notion that a Gentile can be called the, the people of God. That the Gentile can have the same status as a Jew. That's the reality, brothers and sisters, that we have to proclaim wherever you go. We don't proclaim a gospel of division. We proclaim a gospel that where hostilities have ended and now all of us get to be partakers in the same heavenly blessing that is in Christ Jesus. That's what it means for us to be a chosen race. Notice the next one in verse number nine, that we are called to be a holy nation. 
What is Peter saying here? Well, what Peter's saying here is that all of us have a common tradition and a common culture as the people of God. That's what it means for us to be a holy nation, that all of us have the same basis or the same culture within the people of God. Recently, I was in a, a store. I think I was getting my car fixed. And I saw this gentleman. And, you know, like in the South, when you see someone, even if you don't know them, you say hi, right? Because that's just what we do. And so I said hi to him, and he kind of looked at me and, you know, kind of kind of give a half-hearted hi. And so I went to get my car back. And as I was walking out, another individual walked in after me. And he had on a particular shirt. And as he passed me, immediately the individual who I said hi to originally looked at him and he said two words. Actually, one word. Roll Tide! And the other guy said, Roll Tide! And then, you know, and, and then the sky parted. And the angels descended. And there was worship. Right? That's what happened right there. Now, not exactly. But, but look, I didn't even have to tell you. I didn't even have to tell you who know what shirt he had on. And you know what else? I, I don't have to tell you all that goes into that statement if you truly know that statement. Now, for those of you that don't know, the guy walked in with an Alabama sweatshirt on. Big A, curly, right? There's a culture that goes along with Roll Tide. And here's the thing that I realized. First of all, we were in Georgia. We're not even in Alabama. And they were yelling Roll Tide. You know what else I found out? You don't actually have to go to Alabama to be an Alabama fan. Most of the people that I knew that were Alabama fans, A, didn't live in Alabama, and B, never went to Alabama. But that's beside the point. They were a part of the Roll Tide culture. Now, obviously, you see where we're going with this, right? That within the people of God, we have a culture, and the culture is defined by holiness. And holiness speaks to a way of living that's separate and distinct from the world. See, all of us can chuckle and think about what it means to be a part of Roll Tide Nation, right? But do you realize that there's something that characterizes the people of God? And in fact, notice what Peter says in verse number 11 and 12, where he says, as as sojourners and exiles, how do, we, how do we live and what defines the Christian culture? That we abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. That we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's how you and I as believers should live in the world. We should have a culture of holiness. There's a letter written. It's a pretty substantial letter, and I'm not going to read through all of it, but it's, it's called A Letter to Diognetus. It was written around the second century, and listen how the Christian culture was described. He said, Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or custom. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet, and yet, there is something extraordinary 
about their lives. What is he saying here? He's saying that the, the life of the Christian is separated not by externalities, not by the way we look, right? We don't have to keep it high and tight. We don't have to wear long skirts that, because that's not what distinguishes us. What distinguishes us is our extraordinary lives, the way in which we live. Notice he goes on and says this. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. In other words, they don't abort their children. They don't expose them, which was a practice in the ancient Near East. They share their meals, but not their wives. In other words, they were generous in every area of their life, but they were not licentious. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. Obedient to laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. That's how Christians acted. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, and that is their glory. That's what it means to live a holy life. I'll end with this last little bit. It says, they are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. What was he chronicling there that is so powerful? That as Christians, we are called to live as a holy nation, holy people, separated unto God, not by how you look, but by how you act. People know that you are a part of the family of God by the way you say things and how you live your Christian life. Now, notice the next thing, a people for his own possession. This one to me is, is, is the one that I, I just love. A people of his own possession. I just love that term. Because what, what the term means, it, it, the term doesn't mean possession in the sense of a car or a house. Like God, like that's our possession. No, 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 no. What it means, that, that this idea of a people of our own possession means this. It means something that you cherish to the point of protecting and nurturing. Th there's a movie, and some of you might have uh, watched it. I'm not advocating that you necessarily watch it. I watched it a, a little bit ago, but it's called Force Majeure. Some of you might have uh, watched that. But in the movie Force Majeure, and I'm not going to give away all of it, but you could go online and just see the first little bit. But in Force Majeure, it's, it, the high there, it's, it's a French word meaning an irresistible compulsion. And at the very beginning of the movie, there's this guy who takes his family out to this wonderful ski trip. And he's the perfect husband and the perfect father. And they're sitting down getting a meal. And, and an avalanche starts. And as the avalanche came down, um, they started getting more and more scared because the avalanche looked like it was going to hit them. And, and all of a sudden, yes, the avalanche started coming and started coming where they are. And right before the avalanche hit them, uh, people began to, ran, to run, and this guy leapt up from the table, grabbed his cell phone, and ran away from his family. 
and just left them there. And his wife, like, huddled his kids, and the avalanche came, and it wasn't as bad as they thought, but the rest of the movie was him teasing out why he grabbed his phone and protected himself instead of his wife and children. You see, it, it forces us to answer the question, what is truly valuable and important in our life? In that moment, right, he was not in possession of his family. Every husband in here, their impulse should be to protect their wife and their children, without question. That's your impulse. But this man didn't. He grabbed his phone, and he hid, and he didn't even wonder what was going to happen to his wife and children. In that moment, his wife and his children were not his possession. They were not his possession, not his own possession. His phone was and his own life was. Here's the point that God is saying here, that for everyone who is his, we are his own possession. He will give his very life. There's a compulsion to protect and love us. And by the way, that is already seen through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That in our moment of weakness, in our moment when we needed saving, Jesus Christ came and did just that. That's why I love the way in which Peter says it. We are a people of his own possession. The people that he has saved by his blood. The people that he had an irresistible compulsion toward. And if Christ has an in, has an inward compulsion towards us, his people, we should have an inward compulsion toward him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the love of Christ constrains us. In other words, the love of Christ compels us. It should be a compelling force in our lives so that we can live to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now the question is, how do we proclaim him? How do we proclaim him? Well, Peter says here, again in verse 11 through 12, uh, in verse number 9, that we proclaim him by telling people that he has brought us out of darkness into light. That your testimony of what Christ has done for you is an integral part of proclaiming Christ. And here's the thing. Some of us, I, one, of the th one of the reasons why I think people struggle with telling other people about Jesus Christ is because they don't know what Christ has done for them. They're not sure of that reality. They're not certain of what Christ has done for them. And so therefore that makes it difficult for them to talk about what what it is that Christ has actually accomplished on your behalf. And if you can answer that question, then you could proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into light. Now, I also meet people who say this, Pastor Dennis, I don't have a compelling testimony. It's not like I was ever an alcoholic or a drug addict or all these things. Like I, My testimony is I grew up in a Christian home. I had faithful parents. I, I lived the best I can to serve the Lord. I came to faith at an early age. That's my testimony. I don't understand how, how that's excellent. That's not like everybody else's testimony that I hear. That's not like a Paulian-like testimony. Can I tell you that's one of the greatest testimonies? 
That's one of the greatest testimonies to have. Um, I'll end with this. There's a, there's a Princeton theologian by the name of Archibald Alexander, and he was in his office. And Archibald Alexander was studying and writing, and somebody burst through the door and said, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Alexander, you wouldn't believe God's great providence towards me. And he just lifted up his, his face, and he says, well, what is it? He said, as I was coming around this bend, my horse was spooked, my, my uh, carriage spilled over, and it went over the side of the mountain, and I leapt out of that carriage, and I was saved by God's mighty hand of providence. And Dr. Alexander looked at him, and he says, yes, that is a great sign of God's providence. But you know what an even greater sign of God's providence is? That I went around that bend for 20 years, and nothing like that has ever happened before. Listen to me. Listen to me. Each and every one of you have a testimony you can proclaim in the world. Whether it's a testimony of how God saved you from evil and wickedness and a whole awful life, or whether it's a testimony that God saved you being in a loving Christian home, that's a testimony worth proclaiming, and that's a testimony you need to proclaim because that is a part of your calling. That's a part of your calling to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into light. So what's the big takeaway? Big takeaway is simply proclaim. Proclaim it. Whatever your story is, whatever your testimony is, proclaim it to the world because it's excellent and it's the one that God has given you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given each and every one of us a powerful and rich testimony. You've made us new. You've made us a kingdom of priests. You've made us a holy nation. You've made us a chosen race. That's what you have made us. And as a result of that, as a result of that exalted status, we now get to proclaim what you have done for us, to the world. And may all of us indeed do that. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.